Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I'm so glad to be here with you tonight as we begin a brand new series. Is this going anywhere? We're thinking about the story of the Bible. Where does it take us? Is it going anywhere? And that's true as we read through the Bible and we just think about what happened 2,000 plus years ago, the, the 2,000 or so year span of history that's covered in the recorded history of Scripture, is that going anywhere? Was anything happening between Genesis and Revelation that was a uh, an understandable, coherent path, or was it a bunch of different things going in different directions? That's part of the question. But I think when we wonder that, what we're really wondering is, it has to do with our lives. Is my life going anywhere? Where am I going? Where's my family going? Where will future generations go? Where Where are we going? Is this going anywhere? And what we find to the question, both the question about Scripture and the question about our own lives, is that Scripture says, yes, we are going somewhere. And that's what we're going to be exploring over the next nine weeks, thinking about the story of Scripture and what happened in the past, but also what that tells us about what God has for us in the future. And so as we prepare to do that, let's come before our God and ask for his guidance. Because all of us come with with whatever burdens we might have and and questions about our own lives. And and let's come before the God who is the author of all history, including the history that hasn't happened yet, and ask that he would help us to have confidence in what he's doing. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this series, would you help us to see how your word fits together and how it speaks of your love and your truth, your care for creation, your care for each person that you have made, And as we see that, Lord, would you help us to see where you're taking each of us individually? Lord, would you give us the peace that comes from understanding you better and understanding the way that you work in this world better? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin tonight, we're going to turn all the way back to the very first chapter of the very first book in the Bible. And let's just look. These are very familiar verses, but let's look at them and think about them for a moment. Genesis 1, verse 1 to 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. We know these verses. Do we really think about what's happening in them? And as it goes on, and God creates the rest of creation, do we think about what's happening there? He's making everything. That's spectacular in itself. But as he does it, he also declares that it is good. That it is good what's being made, that the world that is known to us now, that as God created it, as he created the seas and the birds and the trees and the animals and he created us, it was good. Do we think about that? We often get into a bunch of arguments about how to interpret creation and, and, and that becomes our focus about Genesis 1. But let's think about the God who created everything and what he said about it. That it was good. We all love building things. I think 
what it is that we enjoy building may vary, but having something that we can we can complete. I, I remember as I was in seminary and early as a pastor, I, I noticed that a lot of pastors ended up, say, making woodcraft of some sort because it gave them something they could take off from work and do and complete. Many of us have jobs that, that never seem to complete things. We're, maybe you're in customer service. Maybe maybe you're a teacher and and your students don't seem to be getting things. Maybe there's a thousand different things. You're a mechanic and, and it seems like every day the same kinds of cars come in and they're always broken. A lot of times we spend time doing something and it feels more like we're running on a treadmill than going anywhere. And certainly that's true sometimes in ministry as well. You see people suffering and hurting and and at times you can feel like, are we actually going anywhere? Is this going anywhere? And and, and so I, I noticed with, with pastors oftentimes they would find some kind of thing they could build that you could take from beginning to end and say it's done. One of the pastors that mentored me, he... One, he was constantly building really amazing woodworking products because he needed something he could, he could complete in a world where everything felt so uncertain. And he became quite good at it, but he became quite good at it because he needed to complete something. He was also a very good pastor, but oftentimes that work keeps going. So we love to complete something. I, I know for myself, I, I, I'm not good with that sort of thing, but I enjoy, for example, when, when I need to take a break, I'll often program something. And I, I was thinking of this over the the last few weeks because we come up to the two-year anniversary of the relaunch of faithtree.com and, and how excited I was as I put it together and I, I, I put in the different features for weather and news and all that sort of stuff and then created the, the user manual for it and had people beta testing it and I think some of the people watching tonight use it and it felt so good when it was done because here was this thing I created and I looked at it and I thought, this is finally good. I I like it. It does what I want it to do. And yet, I think most of us probably look at the things that we make and I can certainly say that about the things that I make and I look back and I think they're good, but they could be better. I know the flaws. When we make something, we know what didn't quite turn out right. The the, the bug in the software, the, the piece of wood that doesn't quite go together, the, the paint that, that doesn't quite flow in the picture. We know these things. But when God looked at his world, he saw that it was good. When he completed his world, he saw even more. Take a look at verse 31 of Genesis 1. It says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Notice, we hear it was good, it was good, it was good. But as God creates human beings and and gives them this world that he has made and and says, go and take care of my world, what does he say? He looks at his creation and he says, it was very good. This isn't a world that's a beta version of the world. This wasn't a world that could have been better if God had spent more time on it. This wasn't a world that was a prototype for world plus that God was going to come out with later. This was a very good world. A world exactly as God intended. This was good. And part of what made it so good was the relationship that human beings had with God. God created us to relate to him, to actually have fellowship with him. And sadly, we get to the part where things start to break down and we see what was lost in the way it talks about God and human beings. Take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. 
It says of Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So God comes down to dwell with his people. He, he manifests himself somehow. It's unimaginable. I mean, how do we get our minds around that? People have come up with all kinds of different theories on that. Was it Jesus before the incarnation? Was God somehow making his presence known in some other way like he did for the Israelites when he appeared as the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud and the, and the pillar of fire? Maybe. We don't really get into the details. and That doesn't really matter. What matters is that Adam and Eve experienced a time when they dwelt with God. He walked with them in the garden. He gave Adam instruction on how to live. And Adam and Eve, for some period of time, unspecified, knew what it was like to, to have a relationship with God in which he would come in the cool of the day and walk with them in the garden. It uses the same language that the Old Testament uses over and over again to speak of those who had the closest relationships with the Lord. And and that would make sense because before the fall, before sin entered the world, human beings were experiencing the closest relationship they possibly could with God. There wasn't any unholy nature in us that was pulling us away from God. And so, for example, later on when we hear about Enoch being taken up, not experiencing death because he was, at least amongst people, a righteous man, he, it says that he walked with the Lord. And we see that over and over again, speaking of those who were most righteous, who followed the Lord most closely. Here God comes and walks with Adam and Eve. But as I said, we, we learn a bit more about what was going on in the garden in chapter 3, where we also learn that Adam and Eve have sinned. And we see how it devolves very, very quickly. It goes from this perfect, very good creation that God has made into a place that's just filled with blame and broken relationships. And we see that as we turn on in chapter 3. It says, The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And there we see Adam blaming Eve for this fall. And then, says, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice here, we we go from a, a perfect world, a world in which everything is made as it ought to be, to a world in which God's creatures blame him for the brokenness of the world that we've introduced. Adam and Eve can't even obey the one commandment that God has given them. What does Adam say? What's the very first thing that comes as a form of explanation for sin? Adam says two things. One, he points to Eve as getting him involved in this whole mess, but he points to God as getting him involved in the the mess of having Eve to get him involved in the mess. And so there's all this blame. There's broken relationships here. Things are coming apart. And in the coming apart, we see what could and should have been a world in which Humans actually walked with God, knew what that was like. It just gets worse from there. For example, we turn to Genesis 6, verse 5. This is right before the flood, and it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
well, we'd like to think that our thoughts aren't evil continuously, but I think if we actually look at our thoughts, there's an awful lot of times that they're maybe not completely evil, but they're filled with some bit of evil. Even the truthful things we say that are intended to nudge people a little bit and kind of stab them a little. The 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 things that we, we do that could be done kindly and yet we do them with anger or malice. The the opportunities to show love to people that instead we just look out for our own advantage. All these things that, that happen that even maybe the very thing that we're doing could be said to be not so bad. The the motive behind it is meant to either only benefit us or to somehow put someone else down, or somehow make the other person realize they aren't doing as good as we think they should, all these sorts of things. We do it constantly. We do it almost like breathing. It's part of what our sinful, fallen nature does. We're constantly taking good things even and using them for bad. I think it makes looking back to Eden so much harder to understand because we look back to what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 in this very good world that God created, and, and we can't even really think what that would look like. We can imagine the things we wish weren't around, the pain and the suffering and so on, but even in that, oftentimes we're, we're thinking selfishly. Well, I would be so much happier if gar- the Garden of Eden were the place I dwelt, and it were exactly like this, and exactly like this means what makes me happy. So even in our attempts to imagine that good world, we bring our sin into it. We don't know which way to turn. It's like trying to unscrew something. And and if, if there's a jar or something, I'm trying to get it unscrewed. A lot of times, I have to say, okay, righty, tidy, lefty, loosey. Okay. <clears throat> there we are. But with the jar, I know that it's supposed to be that way, and it, it, I recite the little thing, and then I, I tug on it for a while, and it finally comes loose. But a lot of times, we're maybe we're trying to unscrew a part to something, and we don't even know if it necessarily screws the way that it normally should. And so I'll, I'll start unscre- trying to unscrew, and then it it won't come. And so then I think, well, maybe it goes the other way, and I start screwing the other way, and half the time I'm actually screwing it tighter when I'm trying to unscrew the thing. I, I, I don't know which way to turn. Literally, I don't know which way to turn. And when we try to understand the world as it should be, we often don't know what the way to turn either. Because everything's so messed up, it's like a jar that's stuck and we just can't get it. So we turn this way and that way, and part of the time we're turning the way we should, and part of the time we're turning against the way that we should. Even in trying to do the things God's called us to do, we use them against each other. Even in imagining a world as God had created it, we use that in impure ways. It's why it's so important that we pay attention to how Genesis describes that starting point so we understand where everything was, what it was supposed to be, what God means when he says it was very good. Take a look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. He wants to make it very clear that as God created human beings, he created us to dwell in a place that provided good food, that was beautiful to look at. He created a place that we would look at and say, this is very good. You think about the most beautiful places you've been in the world, wherever those might be. That was what it was like everywhere. When you think about the the times where there seems to be the least suffering in your life, can you imagine no suffering? But it wouldn't necessarily look like how we imagine. It would look so much better because even the things where we just get temporary relief from suffering, a, a momentary break, a vacation, uh, an hour away out in, in, in some place beautiful, an hour away in a book, we still go back. But here in Genesis 2, that was what Adam and Eve experienced. That, that's what it was. It was this place in which the creation knew that the Creator had made it to be enjoyed by them and to have fellowship with Him and dwell with God. And so the first thing that we know about the creation and and what it means for it to be very good is that that relationship with God. And it goes a step further because God not only created us to be in relationship with him, but with each other. That's the second thing we see in the pre-fallen world. Human relationships that actually work right, that work the way they should. Take a look at verse 21 of chapter 2. God puts Adam into a deep sleep, it says. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We don't get much of a preview or insight into what a a world in which that moment that Adam and Eve are there would be like, what it would be like if we experienced it, but it wants to make it clear everything was good. They weren't ashamed of anything. They weren't fearful of anything. That all comes into chapter 3 after the fall. We're, we're told that Adam, as he sees Eve, relates to her and and it's wonderful and it's good and God has finished up his creation. Here is a human relationship that can be shared along with the relationship with God. It's all good. We don't need to be told all the details because we couldn't even understand them, but, but what we can see very clearly there is that this is all fitting together perfectly. They could have stayed in the garden like that forever. And and, and as other human beings came into the world, it would have been just as good for them. Adam doesn't look at Eve and say, oh no, she's going to constantly be demanding things of me. He doesn't say, oh no, she's going to go harvest things that she shouldn't and give them to me and trick me into sinning against the Lord. He doesn't say anything like that here. He just looks at her and says, wow, isn't she wonderful? This is great. And when we think about human relationships in general, all the people we know and we relate to. That's how it should have been. That to everyone that we relate to, it would have been good. 
And yet, even in our best relationships, even in, in amongst those that we are closest to, we, we find the, the effects of the fall breaking down and, and it's a constant struggle, right? We, we struggle and we seek to get along with people, we, but we have to constantly overcome our own fallenness and the fallenness of other people. And we see that in what we referred to earlier in Genesis 3. Think about what happens as soon as sin comes into the world, what happens? Adam points the finger at Eve. He'd just been declaring how wonderful she was. Now, whatever amount of time later passes before sin enters into the world, now he looks at her and all he can think is, God, you gave her to me and she's gotten me into trouble. Not that he got himself into trouble, that he went ahead and ate what Eve gave him. Not even as many commentators have suggested that maybe Adam either didn't properly convey to Eve all the details, although she knew that she wasn't supposed to eat the fruit. She says that. But God had spoken it to Adam. Adam won't take any responsibility for that. No, he just sees her as someone to blame. And she sees the serpent as someone to blame. And human relationships are broken. And so it is as the relationship with God is broken, so are the relationships with other human beings. And we don't need to to dwell on that too much because we all understand it. We all have friends and family maybe that we we talk to very little or not at all because the relationships are broken people that we dread to talk to because even if we we care about them deeply we know it's going to be hard we all understand that because we all experience that and as we look at that the the fact that we know that doesn't feel right and we wish it were different should remind us that when we read genesis 2 it wasn't that way it's what we wish for it's that 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 situation where where everyone could harmoniously get along together. Now, again, we we import our own sinful nature into that, and so we look at Genesis 2 and think about the people around us and think, well, if if those people were Genesis 2 people, they'd do this or that for me. They'd make my life easier. And in truth, what we see in Genesis 2 is is something a little different than that. Because we wouldn't be simply thinking about how we get other people to serve us, but how we mutually serve each other. That's what Adam is thinking at first when he sees Eve. That's what Eve surely is thinking as she sees Adam, is that we serve each other. We we come before the Lord together. We experience these things together. And it goes from there. We, we read in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. So now we get the example of the first human siblings and how they interact. And of course, we know that ends very badly. Cain murders Abel. That's That's not good, obviously. Later on, we get Lamech, which, whom we talked about a few months ago in another series, and, and how he he murders someone and brags about it. We see life breaking down. And so those evil thoughts we talked about earlier, that, that as God looks in Genesis 6 before the flood and says that, that human beings are just constantly meditating on evil, we see how that evil just permeates like a poison into how we interact with each other. And we could keep going. I could go on all night talking about examples in scripture of, of human beings doing horrible things to other human beings. We could open the newspaper and find plenty of examples of that. We can look in our own lives and, and see both people doing horrible things to us and us doing horrible things to other people. God understands that. Not only because of that initial broken relationship with him, but also of what he took on for us. Isaiah 53, verse 3. We're told of what Jesus is going to experience and do long before he came. Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows 
and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. When we think about how people treat us, when we look at how Adam treats Eve there, when we, when we think about how Cain treats Abel, when we think about how people throughout Scripture treat each other, when we think about how people throughout history have treated each other, when we think about maybe how your co-workers or, or fellow classmates or, or neighbors or the people driving down the road around you or whomever you've interacted with today, the clerk at the grocery store, all these different people that we interact with, what do we find? We find broken relationships. Just like what we see in Genesis 3. So where are we going? Well, it seems like we're going in the wrong direction, doesn't it? It seems like we're taking the jar and we're just screwing that, that lid on tighter. We're not getting anywhere closer to loosening it because we just keep treating each other horribly. We keep finding new ways to treat each other horribly. Where are we going? We get a sense of that in what God commands us to do and to be as his people. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandments were, we read this in the Gospels. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well and asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And those weren't new at the time of Jesus. He's not surprising them by saying this. These, these commandments are given in the Torah and the first five books of Scripture and in, in the law. But if we think about it, it goes back even further. What do we see as the breakdown that happens in Genesis 3? We see a lack of love of God, not obeying him, not following him, and allowing that relationship to come apart. And then the relationship between the two human beings, Adam and Eve, coming apart. A lack of love of God and of neighbor. So from the very beginning, as sin enters into the world, we see by negative example how important these things are. And when we think about our calling as Christians to be those who love our neighbor and love God, we see that God is calling us to go back to the starting place, to where it was when Adam and Eve related well to each other and to him. And to him. And to let people taste a little bit of that. To speak of what should be. But to do more than to speak of it, to actually live it. When people see us acting out of love of God and of neighbor, is transformative. Because as we're, we're trying to twist off this lid and we don't know which way to turn, we just struggle and we make it more and more of a mess. And I suppose if I kept turning this long enough, I might make it so I couldn't get it off at all. God says, start at the starting point. Look back to what I made. Before I gave all the law and all the intricacies and all the details and there's all the prophecies and there's all the history and, and, and everything else and all the things that we add on, all the things that we value in the experience of the church, before we get to all that, if we just think about for a moment, what was very clear in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 shows us a, a, a people, if we can speak of them as, as a people yet, there's only two of them, but a people who know how to love each other and to love God. 
That's where we're supposed to go back to. It's not easy, is it? If it were, we'd, we'd, we'd just snap our fingers and do it. But nonetheless, as we, we meditate on what God created and, and we can't get our heads around what it could have been like when it was very good, still, I think we can kind of get a sense. And it can help us to start to be those who help to restore. I'm reminded years ago, my family got a minivan and I think it was less than a year later we were we were at a, a corner turning and we had to stop because there was traffic and the person behind us clearly didn't think that we had to stop and the next thing we knew the car behind us was uh, attached to our car and had left a nice little impression in the back of it and so like you do you go through the insurance process and then you take the the van in or whatever car you might be driving and and so it went to the dealer and the dealer didn't have an auto body shop but their sister dealership did that was a different make and they sent the car over there and the car got repainted they they fixed the area that was dented and it came out and it didn't look like it had originally the shape of the metal was different and the problem was that that the repair shop wasn't familiar with that car because they were a different type of dealership and they clearly hadn't done their homework and well, they hadn't looked at the other side of the car that wasn't dented, apparently. But uh, they had made what was originally a, a curved and, and textured piece of metal, just a flat piece of metal, because they didn't understand what it was supposed to be. And so often as we seek to, to live as, as people and, and as Christians, if, as, if we confess Christ, but, but just simply as people, we have a sense that things need to be repaired. We know that some paint needs to be put back on and some dents need to be pulled out and so on, but we don't necessarily know how things are supposed to go. And so when we do it on our own, we, we, we put the metal back in, but it doesn't fit in place right because we're pulling it out, but we don't know where we should pull it out to. We need to actually look at what was. If we want to understand where we're going, if we want to understand, is there a purpose to our lives? Is there a purpose to the span of the history of the universe? We need to start by looking at where it was in Genesis 2. Where it was in Genesis 1 when God declared it very good. Because, you see, even the best auto body shop can't restore a car perfectly. That's why we all hate when our cars get hit, because it seems like it's always a hassle. But Jesus does perfect restoration. When we study something to restore it, to fix it, what do we do? We're studying what it was supposed to be, how it was supposed to look, how it was supposed to work. And God calls us as a people that are restorative to the world to look at his purpose, to look at how he intended things to be. And then in, even in our current sinful state, to do everything we can to be conformed to him. Because he gives us our, his spirit to shape us. And he's molding us back into the shape we're supposed to be. And as we allow that work of the Spirit in our own lives and we seek to share that joy with other people, we become a people of restoration and restoration does happen. We can't imagine the the very good world that God made. We can't. And, and so sometimes we settle for that misshapen piece of metal because that's all we can come up with. And we look at the future and we think, well, it doesn't seem like we're going anywhere because there's just a bunch of dented up, beat up old cars. But when we turn here and we see that God actually made the world and it was very good, we're told that he's going to make all things new, we're assured that we actually do know where we're going. 
We may not be able to fully understand it. We may not be able to fully experience it now, but we know that God made something that was very good that as we start to dwell on it and think about it, we think, boy, that really would be good. He's promised to allow us to experience it because he's going to pull all of our dents, all of our broken pieces out, put them back together. We may not know which way to screw things on and off, but God does, and he'll take the parts that need to be unscrewed in us screw them back on correctly and send us out to do the same for others. Would you pray with me, please? Father, some of us come tonight and come before you not even sure we have a purpose, not even sure that that you have a purpose, not really even sure what to make of the idea that there is a God in this world. But as we read your word, May we see the sense that there is a purpose, that you are there, that you are the creator, that you love us, that you care for us. And as we are called to trust in you, that we can do so with confidence, that you will bring us back to the shape we were meant to be. Some of us can get that far, but then we still lose sight. We're not sure which way to turn next. We just feel like we're screwing the lid on the wrong way. Lord, would you help us to see how in this example from Genesis 2, in a world in which human beings could dwell in wonderful relationship with you and with each other, you have shown us what it means to to live in a, a very good world. And while we may not be able to get there entirely right now, we won't get there until our Savior Jesus returns. We know that we can be those who give a taste of it to each other and to a hurting world. And Lord, would you use us to do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this was an encouragement to you as we start to go through God's word in the big picture version, thinking about how it all plugs in. And if it was, would you give us a like or a share? Maybe you have some friends on your social media that have been thinking, I don't know how to put together the pieces of scripture. It seems like there's some stuff that happens in the Old Testament, some stuff that happens in the New Testament, and then here we are now, 2,000 years later, and I don't know how it all fits. Encourage them to to join in and, and to watch. Because over the next nine weeks, we're going to be thinking about how all those pieces come together, starting with this piece of what was and how it was very good. And we're going to see how ultimately God is going to make it very good again. So I, I do hope that you'll help spread the word for that. Another thing I'd love for you to spread the word on and then to take part in is Faithtoberfest that's coming up on October 14th. You can register online for free at faithtoberfest.org or if you already have a Little Hills or Faith Tree account, that's all you need. You can log in there, start spreading the word using the tools on there to earn prize tickets. And then that night, either in person in our parking lot at Little Hills or... You can join in online if you can't be there in person. We will have a wonderful night of faith and festivities and prizes. We'll live stream all the music from it. And then, of course, we can't live stream the food. But if you come in person, you can enjoy great barbecue as well. So please do join us for Faithtoberfest and help get the word out. Hope you'll join me next week as we continue this series, digging into the next part of this puzzle of where we are going because we are going somewhere. And that you'll also join us at 5.30 p.m. this Sunday night as we continue our series Kingdom Now. It fits in very nicely because in the Kingdom Now, we're showing where we are going. I, I hope that you'll join us either online or in person once again for that. Jim is going to be preaching this week. I know it will be an encouragement to you. 
So please do that. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to leave a prayer request in the comments below or shoot me an email at the email address on screen. I do love hearing from you and it's a great honor to get to pray for you. Hope you have a wonderful and blessed week and I hope to see you at these events very soon.